For those of you I can't see, hi, I'm Sheila. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And that, by far, is the most important thing I will say this morning. Uh, and I, I guess I feel an urge to tell you that I was really flattered when Roger called me up and asked me to speak and told me how long he wanted to speak, which was probably 20 minutes longer than I was interested in speaking. But he phrased it in such a way that I felt so good in my heart that I could be loved by such an estimable group that I said yes, yes, and walked out gleefully. The diarrhea started shortly after that. (laughs) Okay, so in a moment of fearlessness, you'll notice I'm wearing white pants. I always like to take my challenges head on. Uh, I have to tell you all, those of you who know me from the Wisconsin group and were out to supper with me last night went through the jitters and my other friends here with me. And I guess that I have to tell you that it's worse than that. It's even worse than it looks because about two weeks after I got invited to do this, I had my first dream about doing this. And what I dreamt was, okay, that I would be in a room full of tables Okay, with recovering people in them, all of whom were standing up, milling around, drinking coffee, and talking to each other. So I'm glad to see you're all sitting down. It's really kind of comforting. Let me qualify for you. And I think really what I'm going to do today is what Roger did after he explained to me what the topic was. He said, well, gee, just tell your story, Sheila. And that's what I intend to do. Um, I guess that... I was uh, a small-town girl by upbringing in a rural Wisconsin town. Most Many of you know this kind of part, but let me run through it quickly. And I was the daughter of one of the local family physicians that everybody loved and held in great esteem and <coughs> had kind of an idyllic childhood, one in which I fully enjoyed myself, but I always kind of felt outside the process. We were the only... Jewish family and a population of 3,000 people. So from the beginning, I kind of had this little paranoid tilt, I would guess. It's one of those things that goes with the territory. Explaining myself was something I started at a fairly early age. The important things that one does in high school and grade school and other places I did, I was a Girl Scout until I was 17 with my looking for boys the whole time, like one does till they're 17. I had my first drug when I was about 12 as, as I prepared to do the state spelling, spelling bee. My dad gave me a Librium. And I remember very little about that experience. I don't think it had great impact for me one way or the other. But then again, what do I know? I didn't think I was alcoholic either for a really long time. Um, I, my first drink, I think, was sometime after I graduated from high school at a party. But the story gets hotter faster. And it was clear to me after I went off to pre-medical course at Northwestern University in Evanston that I would have to learn how to drink and what my limits were. I had a friend and still have her best friend in my life who was five days older than I am and we got together. She went to University of Wisconsin where they drink lots and I went to Northwestern where the WCTU had its national headquarters, a dry town at that point. And we decided that to preserve ourselves for posterity and every other thing that women do, that we would learn how to drink so that we couldn't be taken advantage of. I hear I hear some echoes from the back, yeah. 
So we did that, and my father was the bar, no, my brother was the bartender, and my father drank the slops, and Ann and I sampled, okay? We sampled and we sampled. Finally, my brother looked at me with a straight face. It's my big brother, the protector, no less, an earth person, too. And he said, you better pick something and see what your limit is. Well, as one might expect, I passed out before I found mine. But absolutely nothing of it. I can remember waking up with my contact lenses still and thinking, geez, what happened? And then, more astonishing than that, being totally unconcerned about it. I think that's probably a pretty abnormal reaction, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I probably will use that phrase again. In college, I didn't drink much. I did aid in my study habits by some substances that come in little capsules that I abstracted from my daddy's sample bin. Actually, Dexamil was my favorite, and I used that to stay awake at night to study and calm down and get focused and things that were probably fairly acceptable in the early 60s. I just did the acceptable things in an unacceptable way over a long period of time. Uh, my, I had decided when I was just a little kid that I wanted to be a doctor. And that occurred because I remember thinking, as I watched my dad trot onto a football field to help a kid who had been sort of stunned, that I wanted to be able to know what to do in a situation like that. And I can recall that as my first effort at controlling crummy feelings. I was scared. The kid was down. Dad picked up his little black bag, ran out on the field and knew what to do. And I wanted to be able to know what to do. I didn't want to be able to fix anybody, which is truly fortunate since I'm now working in addiction medicine. But I did want to know what to do. Okay. So... I went off to medical school, and I was thinking about this. You guys give me an opportunity to kind of review my life when I come up here and tell you, which is my part of the inventory. I was walking around Sheboygan thinking about this, and for years and years I've said such wonderful things as I don't think there was anything abnormal about my drinking until I got into drugs. But I thought about the fact that in 1964, when I was living in the Ward Building, which is kind of the dorm for Northwestern, I was the only girl, I, woman I knew, well, girl I knew, who kept a fifth of Jack Daniels in the bottom drawer of her desk. And I can remember drinking to fall asleep because I was under such enormous stress even then. As time went on, I developed some physical problems. I had some back problems, and uh, women in medicine all know that when you have physical problems, then you're in medicine. As a, you tend to get somewhat uh, disbelieved and discounted. And I saw neurologists for my back problem, and I saw orthopedic surgeons for my back problem, and I saw psychiatrists for my back problem. And at that point, my drinking was probably within the normal range for medical students, which is, as most of us know, teetering on the brink of plunging over the precipice into alcoholism. But I wasn't drinking more often than once a week or so with tears, and occasionally I would probably drink a fifth a month. I doubt that it was much more than that. And I was sort of the designated crack for the class. I went off to disprove that and in the next several years had five laminectomies in various phases. And that really is only important in telling you how I really became a full-blown addict early. I think it would have had no significant, uh, it would have made no significant difference in my addiction over a long period of time whether I had the operations or not. Yeah. Uh, 
So the operations were not very successful, and I had a chronic pain problem. And in pursuit of peace, happiness, and the American way, I decided that what I should do was pursue, persevere, go forward, spoken like an addict right from the beginning. And what I said to my neurosurgeon after the second procedure was, as I pre- as I prepared to go back to class three weeks after my fir- my second laminectomy with chronic pain, what I said was, if I'm going to have pain, I'm not going to let it get in the way of my being a doctor, and I went back to school. He thought I was totally nuts, and I can tell you that it was really that propensity for addiction that led me into the practice of medicine, and in some ways, my whether it's for good or for bad, kind of allowed me to get through what I had to get through to become a doctor. And I'm very grateful for that part of it, as I am for many of the things that I've been through. As time went on, I drank more, and I used more drugs. After a time, I got into an internship in internal medicine, and drank when I was off call, and used drugs when I was on call, and the drugs that I predominantly used were Valium and opioid analgesics. I have been known to abstract a little morphine sulfate sitting at the bedside when the patient needed it less than I did. I think there are one or two of us who've done that. All very serious business. And looking back on that, that really is not normal behavior for me. Certainly not in my recovery. You'll all be pleased to hear that. And I could not figure out why my life was going so badly. I thought I was doing the right things. I thought I was okay. I thought I was speaking slowly and clearly, but my perception of my behavior was somewhat outside of reality. They knew even then. They just didn't know they knew. And I did not know at that point. I knew there were some things that were true, that life was so tough and my job was so stressful because my beeper kept going off, guys. And we were doing resuscitations, and I was in internal medicine, and things were hard and hairy, and those guys, those male chauvinist pigs were out to get me. The fact that occasionally recurs, you notice I said fact, but at that point was not part of the pathology. And I needed relief from the pain I could not stand, and only a small part of that pain was physical. The other part was in here. It was what Bob Earl calls a situation in which I knew that no matter where I went, no matter what I did, I was not enough. Now, coming from a loving, although alcoholic family, that really is not anything I can blame on my family. I think that's something that I have as one of my basic characteristics. It probably is something you should call a defect of character. As time went on, the complications of my addiction got worse. I essentially after a bit got uh, excluded from my residency training program. They fired me. I fired them. It was one of those mutually beneficial exchanges of absolute rage on all parties' parts when everyone's had enough and can't understand what's going on but has a fundamental belief that something's terribly wrong with everybody in this room and we need to end this situation. And I went forward into... uh, that great placer for doctors in trouble, the, I think it was the Chicago Sun-Times ad section, and flipped over the paper and saw an ad for an ER doc and went to do that. And that job ended when I ended up at work under the influence of a sedative drug, specifically Doradin. 
in the course of having my operations and all that jazz, I had some bad times with depression because I thought it's never going to get better from my back, and I thought that was the end of my life, and I ended up in a psych ward at the Mayo Clinic. That was some time before I got into the, the dire straits. I ended up in the psychiatry ward for the second time after having a seizure from Doradin withdrawal. Clever. It's a great drug, though, for pain. I mean, all kinds of pain go away when you take enough Doradin. And then there's the pain after the seizure, which maybe one or two of you know about. I always seem to take things right to the edge. And the psychiatrist, in his infinite wisdom, stuck me in the psychiatric ward. And I was a very nervous lady, so he thought I had an anxiety disorder, not otherwise specified. And I did. And his choice for medicines for that anxiety disorder were one of my favorite drugs, which is Valium. And he gave me about five milligrams five times a day or something like that. And we had some psychotherapy and he told me what I needed to change about my life. And I told him that I appreciated his input. But would he leave now? And I did not let him in the door. And occasionally he would mention maybe you should do something. Maybe you shouldn't drink. But he said then, I understand why you do it because your life is so stressful. I'm, you know, I can't understand why I fired him. I think he maybe wouldn't write one prescription or something. I opted to continue psychotherapy with his social worker colleague, a man I think I thought I could control a little bit better. I mean, I dazzle him with the kind of all the knowledge that I thought I had. And in the psychiatric ward where I made some of my best decisions, I met a woman who had a funny broad-based gait and kind of this bad tremor. And her husband was the president of a small university in the Midwest, which she'll go nameless. And she thought I was the neatest thing since sliced bread. And I thought she was absolutely right. And this is all just the misfortunes of fate. And her husband hired me to be the student health physician at that college. And more laughter, yes. They told me, though, I had to be quite careful because the guy who was the chief there was quite a notorious alcoholic. And I thought, aha, good, maybe I can help him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a life. So I went off to Valparaiso, Indiana, actually, and helped other people. I was told there was no drug problem with the kids and it would be just a piece of cake. And it turned out to be an enormous nightmare. And... I just continued to act on my addictions, all of them, uh, essentially sticking more to alcohol because it was kind of tough, as some of you may know, to break into the pharmacy fraternity in smaller towns. I mean, when you got a bigger town, you got a little bit fewer more prospects to browse through. So I drank a lot, and I got married there. Um, I got married to a guy who wandered into the emergency room and seemed to have some of the same propensities that I did. We kind of liked to party hard, and he liked to tell me that I really didn't need a psychiatrist. I was still seeing a psychotherapist at the time. But what I needed was a friend, and we drank to that. It really kind of bothered me that he was a funeral director, but he gave that up after we got married, so that was quite okay. I was very offended when he caught me drinking from the bottle. And he thought that was alcoholic and said so, the bum. But that was okay because he passed out at my surprise birthday party. It was sort of tit for tat. 
it was more pathology packed into a single year than I found any of my patients able to compete with. And I've done all the wrong stuff and hope to look forward to doing maybe one or two right things in the future. But it was quite a learning experience. We went through battering and sexual misadventures, and he abstracted some of my money, and you know, all of which I handed him a clean ticket to do. It was, after all, I thought my last chance to be normal. My brother later said that if you'd been in your right mind, you'd never have married the bum. And the police of chief from the small chief of police from the small town that I grew up in, Evansville. Wisconsin told me for the first time in his life he had prayed for someone to have an automobile accident on the way to the wedding. And as I stood under the hoopie, the little canopy at the temple, I can remember really clearly looking around and about two drinks into a buzz, thinking to myself, I really think the best man at this wedding is the best man at this wedding. (laughs) So we walked back down the aisle and had a heck of a party at which some people fell asleep sitting up under the influence of alcohol and we went off to an idyllic honeymoon in Jamaica where I stopped my Valium but drank enough to make up for it and had the turbulent year that I've described to you. At the end of that turbulent year, I bottom out in a way that I don't even like to live through again, even though it's for your benefit that I, and my own benefit that I talk about it. I felt isolated. I was alone. I felt uh, inadequate in every way, and I went on to continue drinking for a period of four or five years and going from job to job in that town starting as a student health, moving to emergency medicine, as many of us do in that odyssey on the way to treatment, and ended up having seizures and hallucinations as a consequence of stopping my own drugs and alcohol from, at one time. Uh, I ended up in an in a intensive care unit after an overdose, having had clear intent to kill myself because I couldn't tolerate pain for one more day. But unsuccessfully... I attempted with Nemutol and four under the kinds of drugs to knock myself off and ended up in intensive care where I needed to be, but I was feisty about it and I had no problems after that understanding why people pulled tubes out, because I sure did. Took six people to draw my blood, a fact that I'm not really proud of, and I hallucinated and I did all those things and it wasn't to be the last time. When I was transferred down to the general floor, the internist who was taking care of me took a look at me and he said, you know, you need help. And I said, yeah, I agree with that. I hadn't even cleared yet enough to understand what he was saying and what he wanted me to do essentially was go off to treatment, but he didn't quite put it that way. He said, you have a lot of problems and you need to take care of those problems. And I said, yes, you know my ex-husband. I thought that was really smart. He said it wasn't my ex-husband, it was my drinking. And he wanted me to go to treatment for alcoholism. And I said, I don't want to do that. And he said, and I heard this for the first time, If you don't do that, I'll report you to the board and have your license irrevocably removed. And I said, I'll go. (laughs) One or two of you can remove. So off I went. They had limited facilities in Indiana at that time or so, they told me. So my choices included Marion State Mental Institution, which sounded singularly unattractive, although they told me it was quite a pretty rural setting. 
or a place in Georgia. And I elected to go to the place in Georgia. I am sure that that was partly because they kept me in the hospital and gave me drugs before I went. And when I went to treatment for the first time, I went with a pocket full of pills, clean and sober, and I was standing like I am now with my hands in my pockets, and I can still remember the sweater, a handful of Tylenol-3 in my little left paw, and the nurse looked at me straight-faced and said, would you give me those pills you have in your hand in your pocket? And I thought she was clairvoyant. <laughs> just, it just astonished me, as it has in the course of my addiction, time after time. I don't see in me what you guys see in me, and I sure as heck didn't do better at that when I was drinking and drugging. I did worse. So she took them away, and I had a very turbulent time in that particular treatment center, part of which was was due to the fact that I had a near-exsanguinating hemorrhage because of ulcers that were not easily recognized. And part of it was that I was there against my own resistance and again, I had absolutely no reason to go on living. I wrote an inventory after I got back to the treatment center from the intensive care unit after my bleed. I wrote a personal inventory autobiography that was just a masterpiece. I think the mini-series will come out next year. <laughs> and I can remember sitting there. They had a setup there where you have this table. Okay, In your room, you have single rooms and people to help you out. And in front of the table is a mirror on the wall. And when you write your inventory, you look at yourself. A scary thought indeed. And I did it and got off into a very florid description of my life. Once again, no one will be surprised here that my husband, ex-husband then, featured prominently in my history and a lot of other people. Um, and I just kind of hung out there. At one point, I can remember thinking, you know, plenty of you are thinking this. Okay, there may be just one or two of you newcomers who might be thinking this. You know, if I wait long enough, they have to send me home. <laughs> Told you I was clearing because I was thinking worse than that before. And I waited long enough and I went to everything they told me to and I did what they told me and I was compliant, so furiously angry and full of self-pity. Almost. I mean, just kind of stellar amounts of those things. I waited. I can't. I can remember thinking, well, maybe I am an alcoholic. Yeah, I am an alcoholic because I knew I could give up drinking, but I was never, ever going to give up that pain medicine if I needed it or that Valium for my muscle spasm or all that other good stuff or, I mean, sleeping. For heaven's sake, those were really important things that helped me function in this life and all my horrible difficulties. So I went after successfully converting a 28-day treatment program into a program in which I was in primary from September 20th, I believe, until December 11th, 1979. For those of you who can't figure it out, it's more than 28 days. I went home with the intent to not do anything they told me, and I proceeded to do just that. They wanted me to go to AA. I went to a couple of meetings and decided, as one of my buddies from Madison says, that AA was not the place for a woman of distinction such as myself. And I can remember thinking to myself, you know, they want me to go to three meetings a week. I, I'm not going to 
turn into a professional alcoholic. I thought that was pretty cute, too. And I stopped going. Uh, my idea of how to get better from this was to retreat into the safety of my home of my birth. And I did. I slept from 2 a.m. until 10 a.m. And I got up and stayed in my room. High social skills are now surfacing. Stayed in my room. Read books about Watergate and smoked. Cigarettes, fortunately. And that was how I spent the next year, depressed, immobilized, having no tools in spite of having been presented with all the tools in retreat from life as I knew it and unable to find another life. Unable to even extend out my hand to reach for what was there for free. I started practice again after that year was up. I started my own family practice, and something they did in Georgia must have helped me get better because I was much more functional even then. I was not drinking or not using for a period of two years. They're the most miserable years of my life, I think, bar none. But I was a little bit more functional. I was living with my mother whose senility was kind of creeping up on us. I was not very well-based in reality and had denial about that. I certainly had denial about my alcoholism and addiction, even though I mouthed the words, even though I told the medical board that I was in treatment. And one night, my mother and I were watching television. I have to tell you that my mother often at that point often didn't know when she went into the kitchen or got halfway to the kitchen whether she was going to get something to eat or coming back from getting something to eat. Okay? After watching TV, the mom looked at me on one occasion and said, you know, I really don't believe you're an alcoholic. And I said, you're right. I did not drink immediately, but very shortly thereafter, sitting in my family practice office and converted veterinarian, Doggy Haven in Evansville, Wisconsin. A package of Tylenol 3 came drifting across my desk, and that was the end of any abstinence that I had because I knew I needed it. And things progressed. My drinking and drugging really, in many ways, never got as bad as it was in Indiana years. Uh, but they took their toll. And it was bad enough, but my life wasn't good to start out then. I was unhappy. I was resentful. I thought I was menopausal. My nurse thought I was in withdrawal. I don't know what these nurses are taught these days. And life really kind of remained low-key, messy, and stressful, and I was not a happy camper, as we would say. And I would go away from, from Evansville on breaks and drink and carry on and do what alcoholics do, drink to intoxication and sober up by Sunday and come back to work on Monday. And time was passing and I wasn't getting any better. I was getting worse. Fortunately for me, I was working in a hospital in Stoughton in which folks knew a little bit about drugs and alcohol. And one of those bright dots called up the State Medical Society of the State of Wisconsin, talked to the Impaired Physicians Committee and said, we think she's sick again. And then the, the journey began in real earnest. What happened next was I got an interesting phone call from a, a gentleman named Dr. Rick Hauser saying, Hi, I'm from the State Medical Society's Impaired, my least favorite word, Impaired Physicians Committee. I was sitting in the back in my little office smoking cigarettes and looking cooler, so I thought, 
probably with a couple of bottles of pills in my desk and lots of samples. I always got lots of samples. He said, we'd like to chat with you. I thought, this can't be good. <laughs> he said, a woman physician, and I would just love to come out and visit with you. Someone sent us a letter, and I thought, ah, something's really not going so well. But I did the appropriate alcoholic addicted thing, and I got so pissed off and self-righteous that I almost hung up on him. How dare they say such things about me? Well, we won't say what they did next. At any rate, we made an appointment for him to come out, and they came to my office, and I knew what to tell him because, after all, I'd had like a 100 days of primary. I should have it figured out by now. I may be an alcoholic and an addict, but I'm not entirely stupid. And when they came to my office on that Wednesday morning, they chatted with me about alcoholism in general, and they talked with me about some of parts of me in specific, and Dr. Hauser shared some of his story with me. And I looked at them and I said, well, I know I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to AA three times a week, lie number one. I have two sponsors, lie number two. But the third is probably what tipped my hat and tipped my hand, and that was I said that I only drank occasionally. <laughs> But I could never, I really couldn't understand they wanted to evaluate me at McBride. I really couldn't understand it. I thought I'd pass the test with flying colors. I mean, I told them most of what I remembered about treatment. You can laugh now, too. And he would have said that I was psychotically delusional. And I think that was correct. So they said they really wanted to chat with, they would have to talk me over because I was such a complex case. It's kind of like when Roger called me up and asked me to talk to, you know, flatter me a little bit to get me on a roll. And then they said they'd call me back with their conclusions and sure enough, they let me hang for about a week and a half and they called me back with their conclusions. And I can remember that phone call fairly clearly. I can remember not much else but that phone call. I can remember Hauser saying, we would like you to come in to McBride for observation. And my saying, but I can't. I have a solo family practice in a small town. Are you ready for the gut wrencher, guys? They depend on me. He said, interesting, we've talked to a few of your partners. Not your partners, but your colleagues at Stoughton Hospital. They would just be delighted, thrilled even. To cover for you in your absence. <laughs> I bet they do so. I said, but I don't think my insurance will cover it, and I'm stony broke, a condition that most of us have chronically when we're in the throes of our addiction. He said, interesting, we've talked to the director of your HMO, which covers you. And they'd be delighted to pay for all the treatment you need. <laughs> And I said, oh. <laughs> he said, we'd like to have you come in soon. I said, oh. He said, you really don't have to come in. I said, yes, but I know you'll call the board. And he said, well. <laughs> so we made arrangements for me to enter McBride. 
in my infinite wisdom for the second or third time, I decided that the way to get through with this problem was to demonstrate that I really was not addicted. I remembered reading Goodman and Gilman, you know, the Bible for those of us with addictions, and thinking to myself, hmm, it says that opioid withdrawal is a mild flu-like syndrome. Anybody here had that? Mm. Okay, it says that you know, very little about benzodiazepines, and I was taking a handful of quantities of each and multiple times a day, said on the label. Of course, I had the label made up myself. It said one four times a day. I assumed that meant one handful four times a day, or whatever. I mean, I kind of tapered that. And I can remember clearly thinking, well, I'm going into McBride on Sunday. I'm stopping my drugs, and I did. Well, there are those of us who have to learn it the hard way. I stopped my drugs, I think, Tuesday was my last set of drugs, and by Friday I was having uh, diplopia, and by Saturday I was admitted to St. Mary's Hospital in Madison with the chief complaint, I can't see straight. Okay, very ill indeed, sweating bullets in advanced withdrawal, and the next 10 days are unknown to me, except for some memories that are frightening and severe of the hallucinations I had when I stopped my benzos and drugs. And I remember waking up in four-way restraints. There are other things that I can remember that are not germane. But I would not recommend that anybody try this abrupt detox method. It wasn't fun. Persevering to the core, I woke up. That's about ten days. And looked up at the psychiatrist and the internist. In my four-way restraint still, and said, are you ready? I said, you know, I'm supposed to go to that McBride place for observation. We all know what's coming next. But, I said, you guys have been watching me for a week or ten days. And you know I'm okay, so can I go home? <laughs> and I really thought that. I mean, I really thought that. I was so sick. It's kind of a miracle that I survived it all. That was the beginning. They said, no, you can't go home. They said, we don't know what's wrong with you. They wrote my final discharge diagnosis was viral encephalitis. Kind of warmed the cockles of my heart when I heard that some months later. But they put me in a car and took me off to McBride. And there I started getting better because the second time around, they kept me longer. But I got it. I got it. I can remember sitting in treatment thinking to myself, I wonder if there's ever going to be a time when every part of my body doesn't hurt. But they said, just go to meetings, don't drink, don't drug, and you'll get better. That was kind of okay, because I was sort of stuck in the center at that point, you might say, just sort of mushy and malleable, not thinking. I think we could end at that point, not thinking not intact, getting slowly, slowly better, learning how to ease and talk to people again and get along with folks. And I went to meetings and I hated it and I hated treatment and I hated the halfway house and I hated the people that put me there and I hated it all. And I can remember in about the sixth week of my treatment when I was in the recovery house looking at another woman who was in there with me saying, I intend to hate this whole process until the end of it. And was determined to, to do that, but something happened. And what happened was, about two weeks later, I got a little better. And I don't know how higher power works, but it sure is nice that he's so busy with me. 
at that point, I had one silly day where I woke up just full of mirth and laughter, and I giggled all day. And I said, this is really to kill you. They're quick going to ask for urine drug screen. Okay. Because I was all of a sudden feeling pretty good. And I giggled that day, and I thought, this is going to go away. And I didn't hate what I was doing anymore. And I giggled the next day. And I giggled the next day. And they just let me laugh and be silly and make bad jokes. A problem which has persisted, as some of my friends know, to the very present day. And I made bad jokes and got hugged and held hands and did silly stuff and laughed through a five-day period that was really beginning uh, hope for me. And they had hope for me, they told me. They thought I'd get better, and I gradually did. They said go to AA meetings. I went to AA meetings because I had to go to AA meetings, but they made me do it long enough. And after a while, I figured out that when I went to meetings, even though I hated the meetings, that I felt better when I got done being at a meeting than I did if I didn't go to a meeting. And that was really the beginning, and every building block of my recovery has been on that foundation. I guess I got better enough for them to let me go. Not quite let me go. They kept in touch, and not by postcards. They had a lifeline, which was composed of my essential bodily fluids, you know, for a long time. And when I first went to the Texas group meeting, I used to introduce myself in the Texas fashion, which on something like, hi, I'm Sheila, working, I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and with, uh, due to the grace of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Wisconsin Board of Medical Examiners, I have not found it necessary to take a drug or a drink for the last X years, and I had urine screen for four years, and I was glad of every one. One of the, this group, this specifically this group has played an incredible part in my recovery. And one of the things that's happened here is that I've grown to accept myself. The first meeting that I came to was in San Diego, 1986, I believe, but I have a little brain problem, so I may not get the dates right. And I remember not wanting to go, like I didn't want to do anything else that was good for my recovery. And I went, and Becky was here this year with me as well, and I just had a great time, and we had fun, and suddenly it was okay that I was alcoholic. While I was in San Diego, I saw a flyer for the Texas group meeting, in the spring regional meeting, and I picked one up and stuffed it in my suitcase and went off into the frozen Northland once again. And it got to be like December second year recovery, in the midst of my second year recovery, and I was starting to be able to think like a human as opposed to a critter. And it got clear to me that I needed to take some time off because I was well enough to have that idea for one of the first times in my life. And it occurred to me that every winter vacation I'd ever taken had been a place where I drank or used. And I pulled out the flyer, and it was spring in San Antonio, and I thought, well, that sounds good and safe, and maybe it would even be fun, and I went, and there I learned that it really didn't matter that I was a woman, it didn't matter that I was a doctor, it mattered that I was getting better, and I started feeling better. And it seems like every year we walk this walk together, I get a little sounder. Uh, I went back to family practice, and I continued to be in family practice, learning more about myself and more about my life and more about people. 
over the years and going to a lot of AA meetings and talking to sponsors and recovering friends all the time. Coming to San Antonio the second or third time, I was asked to get into the field of addiction medicine, and on that occasion I was to speak before all of you again, and in the process I decided to change my career and did so. In the past seven years now that I've had the privilege of being associated with you and being in recovery, things have gotten steadily better. As sick as I was, as isolated as I was, as alone and afraid as I was, I now have the opposite becoming true. And as time goes on, I know a little bit more about being a healthy person and a little bit less about acting as a sick person. And you have helped me get from where I was to where I am today. And it really has been a fun trip. I think I would just like to close. It's always an ominous sign when Jerry stands up next to the podium. But I'd like to close with... One of the nicer things that's probably happened in my recovery along with everything else. And that is, I guess I'll tell you where I am now. I'm currently I'm working in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, in the home of Bratwurst and Deer, where no broccoli stays upright after the city limits. It all wilts from the elevation of cholesterol and the vapors. But it's a pretty little town, and I'm working at a treatment center there, doing addiction medicine in, uh, conjunction with the guys who got me better and liking myself and my life more all the time. Going to AA still. Coming here still. When I was about three years sober, though, I remember going to the hospital one summer morning. Driving down the country roads in Wisconsin over Badfish Creek to a medical records committee meeting, and I remember not feeling very good. And I remember that my back hurt and it was funny, but I was poopy. Who wants to go to the medical records committee meetings? After all, they really are kind of, well. And I was driving along about quarter to seven. There was one kind of dumpy farm on the route. And in that farm, was lots of junk. There's a red pacer with a yellow hood, about three years old, an old Chevrolet convertible with top off and ash cans and hands and goats, sheep, all kinds of chicken, one pony with a black eye, white pony. And I was feeling kind of awful and I thought, well, maybe this will get better. And as I turned the corner, I saw a glint of metallic blue. And in the midst of all that debris, I saw a peacock in full display, and I was very moved, and I felt better, and I was glad to be clean and sober and capable of appreciating that view. And as I drove on down that road, I thought to myself, you know, that's like the story of my addiction. That's like the story of my alcoholism. In the debris of my life, I found you. And you are my junkyard peacock. And because of you, so am I. I thank you for your kind attention.